You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and welcome to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight the lineup includes an update from Sinead Neeland of the Organic College, a delicious chicken recipe from Karen Coakley of Kenmare Foodies, more social media advice from Evan Mangan of the Marketing Crowd and a chat with Artie Clifford of the Blas Naeran Awards. As always, at the start of the show, I like to tell you how you can get in touch with me. Please send your emails to s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org, which is short for organisation. It's always great to hear from you and know that you're out there listening. Let me know what you think about the show and indeed what you'd like to hear more or even less of. So please do get in touch. One listener who did get in touch had a question about her apple tree and not only did she send her question in but she actually dropped some of the apples that had fallen off the tree in which I have for Sinead Neeland from the Organic College in Drumcolaher. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. I'm joined now in the studio by the newly appointed director of the Organic College out there in Drumcollar. Sinead, congratulations on the new role. Thank you, Sharon. Somebody retired, you told me. Yeah, Jim McNamara just retired at the end of August, so I'm stepping into his rather large shoes. Okay, we appreciate you coming in every month. And this month we actually have, we had a little surprise for you whenever you walked into the door of the studio because there's some red apples sitting there in front of you that a listener dropped in and was just looking for a bit of advice about. Now, they're just, they're... um, a rustic-looking apple, I suppose, is they a good are, way yeah, to that, describe that it. Kind of rusty look, that nice kind of, I suppose, homegrown apple look about them. Really, kind of with the red and green and that little russety bit that kind of usually indicates they're going to be nice and tasty. Um, one of them has damage on it. A whole probably wasps or um, birds, crows do a lot of damage. They pick at the apples and make a hole, and then the wasps go at them, and then rot sets in. You know, so it's, it's kind of what it's. I suppose that's the only downside when you have apples this time of year is that they a lot of them get damaged and apples like these these are eating apples that they look really nice um, and the apples that you get at this time of the year from now on are apples that will store for the winter some of the varieties of apples um, are ready in August and they're really ones that you just eat straight away they're not going to store but from September on the apples that come on the trees will store and these quite possibly just fell you'll always get you know what we call windfalls and there's nothing wrong with them they're perfectly fine but you know the apple is ready to pick when you just twist it when it's on the tree and it comes away you know with the stem attached just comes away that means it's ready but really from now on most of the apples are ready and if you want to store them you should only store ones that are Perfect. You're not damaged. This one is damaged. Now, it's still quite edible and you can just cut out the, the damage bit and eat it away. But of course, once you cut out or once it's been damaged, it won't store. It will allow rot in. It won't store for the winter. But the other ones will store. And one of the easiest ways to do is just wrap each apple in a bit of newspaper and then just store them just in a box or a bag somewhere nice and cool that isn't damp and they'll last away for the winter. Um, do you know, uh, I suppose old apple stores were built and they were kind of like like a little shed or house and the windows would have, there would be open windows without any glass or anything to allow airflow and the apples were all placed on shelves, open shelves and that was just the way they were stored but most of us now don't have something as exotic as an apple store or maybe a, a place to store them so 
by wrapping them in paper you can just put them somewhere cool maybe in your garage or shed that isn't damp and they'll be fine you can just take them in bit by bit could you also maybe go to the the local greengrocer fridge or this might be a bit cheeky and ask them for a box that they have actually received apples in that have the the layers with the the mold shapes and and use that yeah they're perfect as well and they're laid out and the idea of those is that when each apple sits in it it doesn't touch the one next door and that's really just the whole idea so if you can actually get that that's a really easy way of storing them as well and then you can layer them up and put a bit of newspaper on top and the idea of wrapping each one in a bit of newspaper is so that they don't touch off each other and if there's one as they say the bad apple in the barrel um, at least then if they're wrapped in newspaper the the rot won't pass from one to the other but they're quite easy to store now the bad ones if you had too many bad ones that you couldn't eat or when i say bad ones part part of it is bad like that one that you have there is there anything you could do with those can you make anything out of them well you could of course you could you could make you could make um you know and i know apple jelly is usually made from crab apples but there's no reason why you couldn't make an apple jelly from eating apples you could also juice them so the damage wouldn't matter at all just juice them yourself and you'll have your apple juice uh, nice and fresh um i know some people that would uh, take the apples and slice them and freeze them like that and then take them out and use them to make apple pies or whatever you know apple crumble you just have the apple sliced and it seems to freeze quite well i quite like that i quite like the crab apple jelly myself or apple jelly how is that made um it's i suppose it's a more complicated form of the jam making because it's a jelly and when you you know normally you make a jam you put the fruit in the pot with the sugar and you stir it up and it's ready and you put it in your jars with the jelly it has to steep overnight and the you can imagine you know, all the apple the pulpy stuff when you you boil it up first and whatever with the sugar then it has to steep overnight and the pulpy stuff is left behind usually it used to be muslin or you can get you can actually get special jelly kind of yeah you know kind of a knitting thing with a a frame that you sit over your pot and that sort of thing Um, and the pulp then is is left behind and the jelly the, the bit that comes through is what will become your apple jelly so that's why it's a jelly as opposed to a jam you know all these I suppose we use the terms quite loosely but they are actually define a different um, technique or kind of, I suppose, a texture to the, the produce that's made. And apple juice then, how long will the apple juice actually last in the fridge? Well, it would, it would, you'd probably get a week out of it. But I mean, in fairness, you'd, you know, a few apples, you won't get a huge amount of juice. So you'd probably just juice it and drink it and it would be fine. Too labour intensive. So the, the apple jelly is the way to go or maybe a tart. Yeah, yeah. Or store them in that way, yeah. Now, you could, um, if you did have something like a dehydrator, you could slice it thinly and put them in to to dry and then you'd have those dried little slices of apple that you would use you know like a little sweet snack um, I've done it with bananas at one stage as well and they're lovely they're, they're totally dried and you just eat it like a little sweet snack you'd, you'd see them in you'd see that kind of dried fruit often in health food shops that you just kind of can munch on but that's another you know you'd have to have another appliance as such but you couldn't do it in the oven you probably could on a very low a very low heat but it might take quite a while yeah just on apples and having an apple tree in your garden, is that something that's easy or difficult to maintain at this time of the year when those apples come off? Is there any pruning involved? 
Um, you can actually prune now at this time of the year before the leaves fall. You can prune for shape and that, you know, if, if the tree's getting a bit big or you want to kind of cut it back a bit, it's not a bad time to do it. Um, and you can also prune a little bit towards the fruit. Uh, most pruning is done in early spring before bud burst. But at this time of the year, when you're, the apples are kind of finishing on your tree, the leaves haven't fallen. It is actually still a good time to start to do the pruning and maybe to cut back. And it gives you a good idea when you see the leaves in the tree of, you know, if it's overhanging, if it's getting a bit too big or if it's getting a bit congested, which is often what happens with apple trees is the branches cross over and they create congestion. And you don't want that. You want a kind of an open shape to your tree. Because this listener had said that she feels that the tree is very heavy on one side. So that's obviously going towards the light, is it? Um, it could be, and it could depend what else is there. You know, sometimes there might be a hedge or something, and people often don't think you could have something like a big Lelandia a hedge. It may not be right beside the tree, but it's close enough that the tree would feel the effects of it and would start to bend away from it. Um, it there could be other reasons. There could be some, maybe sometimes you might be getting a lot of wind at one side, so the tree doesn't grow as well on that side, and it, it grows better on the other side. But um, apple trees really benefit from the prune if you leave them go they get very congested and crossing branches and damage and you know they don't they're not as fruitful in producing the apples as they could be so by pruning them you kind of get you know you reduce the congestion you open up the tree so there's better airflow through it um, and you also are kind of improving how the, the fruit is going to produce is there any danger of over pruning um, not really the thing with pruning is if you did prune it a bit too much now you might not get a great you know result next year but the following year will be back so you're you know unless you prune the thing right back until there's nothing left you're not really going to kill the tree or damage it that much um, The if you have a tree though that's you know an old tree that hasn't been pruned in a long time you really need to approach it over kind of almost three years because if you were to prune the whole thing back in, you know, straight away, it could go into shock. So you would kind of, in the first year, prune out all the, you know, the dead branches or anything that's crossing or damaged and kind of open it up. The following year, you might try and, you know, open it up a little bit more. And then in the third year, you would be pruning for the fruit. So it's kind of over time to bring it back into its full production mode. For anybody out there that's thinking they'd quite like to have an apple tree in their garden, it doesn't have to be a huge garden to actually accommodate one. No, it doesn't. And apples, most of the apples that we have are grafted and grafted onto a rootstock, which determines the size of the tree. And now in you know more modern varieties, there are some quite dwarfing rootstocks. So you can actually have an apple that will grow in a container for all its life and will still produce fruit. Um, you know, it, the, the it's kind of, I suppose, aimed at people who only have a veranda or a balcony. Um, you can train apple trees in to grow along a wall or a fence so they stay quite small to a size but will still produce fruit so you know you don't you don't have to have a huge garden you don't have to have an orchard you have to have you know you can have an apple tree or you can have quite a small one and the only thing is you as long as there's other apple trees around because you need two apple trees for pollination that was just going to be my next question about the pollination but this reader actually has a tree with two different varieties on it whatever 
It could have been, is it an old, I wonder is it an old tree? Um, that was a practice. I remember the first time I saw it, I, I, was, I was kind of surprised and then I discovered that there's some very, very old trees where there's more than one variety grafted on. And again, if you only have a small garden and have only space for one tree, if you have two varieties grafted onto the one rootstock, you don't have to worry about pollination. You've got your two varieties and it could also mean you might have one cooking apple and one dessert apple so that you've got both, even though you haven't got the room for two actual trees. And of course then the trick is if you want one is to buy yourself one and one as a gift for a neighbour. Exactly. And, and then, then you'll you're, be, you're in a win-win. You'll win, be guaranteed, yes. Win-win situation. That's great, Sinead. I hope now we've answered the listeners' questions and if anybody else listening has a question for you about growing anything, be sure to drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie and your website is still organiccollege.com Yes it is Yes Okay Sinead Director of the Organic College there in Drumcollar Thanks so much for joining me this evening Thank you Sharon Cheers Chin chin Salut Schleinte Thanks to Sinead for sharing her knowledge there and if you have a question please send it to me s.noonan at live.ie and I'll put it to Sinead on her next visit to the Best Possible Taste studio which will be in about four weeks time Still to come tonight, Karen Cookley from Kenmare Foodies has a wonderful chicken recipe which is perfect for this autumnal weather. So grab a pen and be ready to take it down when she's here. First though, we're turning our attention to social media. Evan Mangan was on the programme a month or so ago and talked a lot about Facebook and how it's been used in the food industry. Well, since then I put another call into him and this time the focus was on Twitter. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Evan, the last time we were talking, we talked about the advantages of using social media in the food industry and we talked about lots of different things and we did really focus very much on Facebook. So tonight we're going to look at Twitter. Sure. And the last time you said that in Ireland, 60% of people in Ireland are on Facebook and 29 to 30% are on Twitter. That's right. Why is the, the number not as high there? Well... A couple of reasons. Um, firstly, Facebook is more intuitive to use when you join Facebook. It's just simpler. Whereas when you join Twitter, it is a little bit more complicated. And Twitter can seem to have a language all of its own, where um, because your updates uh, on Twitter, they're called tweets, they're restricted to 140 characters. People tend to use hashtags. They use at symbols for usernames. Twitter itself did some research and found that uh, there is a high percentage of people who join Twitter and then leave because they just can't get their head around it. But Twitter is one of those things that once you do get your head around it, it's amazing. It's a a powerful tool and definitely one that can be used by the food industry. Well, in my personal experience, there is a huge number of foodie type people using it. And there's a lot of foodie type people hate the word foodie, but that's just the word I use. There's a lot of people in the food industry there between chefs that are on TV, food producers, and they're all using it and they all seem to be using it very effectively. Yeah. Um, It is one of those industries that has taken uh, to Twitter. I think it's because uh, Twitter is appealing on a number of levels. You can follow people on Twitter, you can follow chefs, you can follow businesses, restaurants, whatever, and you can get a real sense for 
what's going on within that business. People are tweeting photos. They're tweeting links to videos. Um, and on Facebook, you know, you might send one update a day. Uh, in the past, maybe more than one update. On, on Twitter, it wouldn't be unusual to send out 5, 10, 15 updates a day. And you're really not putting people out at all. You're not encroaching on their newsfeed. So it is a different tool like that. And definitely the food industry has used it to share lots of photos, recipes, links back to the website. And uh, Twitter has become far more visual in the last 12 months, where now there's lots of images uh, coming through onto the newsfeed. Now, there's lots of tips there that you would have for people using it to to get the most out of that 140 character space that they're, they're, they have there, because obviously a recipe and even using links can, can be quite long, but you can actually shorten them. You can. Uh, so I know the thing about Twitter is it looks more professional if your link is shortened. So a very good tool is bitly.com, B-I-T-L-Y.com. And you can go there and you can paste in your link and it will shorten it. And also, if you register for a free account, it will even tell you how many people have clicked on your link and even which social media network they've clicked it on. So it's a very good uh, way of, of measuring the effectiveness. And you can link it back to Facebook, but I know you're not a fan of that. Link Twitter back to Facebook? Yes. So basically, if somebody puts a post up on Facebook, it appears on their Twitter feed. Yeah, and you can do it the other way around as well, whereas if you tweet out, it automatically goes out to Facebook. Um, I'm not because, firstly, if you're sending out a post on Facebook, there is no character limit of 140 characters. Um, So if you were to post something on Facebook and then have it automatically go out on Twitter, invariably it ends up being cut out mid-sentence, mid-word, and it looks lazy. Um, Also, on Twitter, there is a certain way of crafting a tweet so that um, it's short, it's punchy, it gives a sense for what it is you might be linking to. Also, you'd include a hashtag uh, and you might even reference another username by putting in their at username. So you're better off if you're going to use Twitter well, investing the time to send the updates out rather than just duplicating what you're sending out on Facebook. You mentioned hashtags there and a lot of people at home will be scratching their heads saying what is the hashtag because what is happening on Facebook is people are using the Twitter and it is linking back and there is the hashtags appearing on Facebook and it's meaningless and a lot of the people that are on Facebook that aren't on Twitter have no idea what that's all about. Mm. Actually, technically, they do work on on Facebook now. Uh, Last year, Facebook introduced hashtags it's just that they haven't been adopted as much as Twitter. So you could put a hashtag into, before I explain what a hashtag is, you could put a hashtag into Facebook, just do a search for hashtag recipes or hashtag, uh, I don't know, Pavlova, and you'll see lots of posts on Facebook containing that hashtag. A hashtag simply denotes a topic. So if, um, if you sent out a tweet and it was to do with a fish recipe, you might want to put hashtag, and hashtag is simply that symbol on your keyboard, hashtag fish recipe. And what that means is that uh, if anybody on Twitter searches for hashtag fish recipe or clicks on hashtag recipe on another tweet, your tweet becomes more findable. So businesses would use from a marketing perspective to help their tweets get found more. And also Twitter introduced them to group tweets 
on a particular topic together so that people could find content that they're interested in. So you have to be very careful about the hashtag that you use because it could end up, you know, the way some people might use abbreviations and things like that, but it could refer to lots of different things and not necessarily the thing that you're talking about. Yes, uh, I suppose you could end up using uh, inappropriate hashtags, but to be honest, I wouldn't worry about it. Within your industry or your sector, if you're following people and, and they're tweeting and they're using hashtags, you will see hashtags that come up quite a lot. And uh, they're the ones that you should be using. What are your top tips then for anybody in the food industry for them to get the most out of Twitter? A couple of tips. First is don't see Twitter as uh, a direct sales channel. More it's about increasing awareness of your business, of your product or your service, and keeping your business top of mind until somebody is at the point of purchase. It's also a great way to give an insight into your brand, bring your brand to life, give people a sense for what's happening within your business uh, in in a far more impactful way than, let's say, a a printed press ad could. So by by sharing uh, links to recipes, sharing videos, photos, people can get a real good sense for, for what's happening within your business. Also, you could use it as a means of um, generating an email database. If you could produce some content, let's say a, a an ebook full of your recipes, put that on your website, requiring people to leave an email address to download it. Well, if you were to tweet out a link to thousands of people on Twitter, you're turning those anonymous people really into email addresses, uh, which feed into your email marketing. Uh, a really good tip would be to use it as a way to keep an ear out for what people are saying about your brand. So you should be searching for any mentions of your name or your business name on Twitter because not everybody will use your at username. And quite often people are coming into restaurants saying, you know, tweeting that they've just, you know, they're, they're, they're out at this restaurant tonight or that they've just left this restaurant, they had an amazing time. If somebody says nice things about your business, you should go back, reply, and, um, and and thank them. And if people say negative things, you should definitely go back and, and try and make amends and understand what happened. Twist, uh, Twitter is very much a customer service channel, and brands should be listening to what is being said about them. You don't always get the notification that uh, you have been mentioned. You'll only get a notification if they use your at username. Two tools you could use. You could use a mention.com. Uh, where you can set up an alert to see if you're being mentioned on social media. Another good one would be Topsy.com. Topsy, T-O-P-S-Y.com. And uh, you can do a search there for your name or your business name, and you can even set up an alert, and you'll get emailed whenever whenever somebody tweets about you. So that's like go- the way Google alerts, you can set that up for if you're yeah. mentioned on the, in- on the internet. So that's these are specific to social media or to Twitter? Uh, and yeah. Okay. Okay. That's very interesting. I'd say that's something that a lot of people should be taking advantage of if it's if it's a free service. Mm, it is. Mention is free for one, uh, an alert on one term, and then if you want more than one, you need to pay. Okay. Now, before you go, I want to ask you very quickly about Snapchat. I've had a few listeners emailing me and saying, "Can you ask Evan Mangan from the marketing crowd what is Snapchat?" Okay. Um, Firstly, it is a messaging tool and it's an app. So 
you would go to the Google App Store or the, the Apple App Store uh, or the Google Play Store and download Snapchat. It's something that you use on your phone. So this is a smartphone app. And then um, when you open it, it will ask for access to your contact list on your phone. And there it will tell you which of your friends from your contact list also have Snapchat. And when you then connect with other people, friends who have Snapchat, you can take a photo using the camera. And why teens love it is with your finger, you can then draw little doodles on the photo. So instead of just sending a message saying, I'm bored, you could take a photo of yourself with a little kind of bored face and then just write bored on top of the photo. It's very fun. It's frivolous. And then you send that photo. And that photo will then self-destruct in up to 10 seconds. You, you choose the time. So teens love it because it's a fun way to communicate. And really what it is is visual text messaging. Take a photo, take a snap, then write something on it, chat, send it. And then the other person can... Um, reply by sending a photo or they can just send a message but everything self-destructs in up to 10 seconds they have introduced another thing which allows you to keep your message there for 24 hours but we won't complicate it so are you sending it to one person or do you have followers on snapchat no you don't have followers um when you're sending it as a messaging tool if you understand what uh, whatsapp is which is basically just a messaging app one person to one person. That's pretty much what Snapchat is, uh, except that you're sending photos. In the last six months, they have introduced a thing where I could send a message or send a photo and it would be seen by all my friends that I am connected to. In a way, it's kind of followers, but Snapchat is a really tricky one for marketing. I wouldn't advise uh, people to go rushing out to use Snapchat for marketing. It's very difficult. Uh, if anything, if you've done Facebook and you've done Twitter, I would move on to Instagram. I wouldn't go from Twitter to Snapchat because the the returns wouldn't be there for you. And Instagram is another kettle of fish for another day, I'd say. Yes. Yeah, but a really good one for the food industry. Yeah, Very I'd agree visual. with you. Yeah. Lots of lots of chefs and restaurants and everything on there. Well, Evan, it amazes me how you're able to keep on top of all these things. You obviously have a real interest and a real love in the whole social media world. Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? It's mind-boggling, I'd say, for a lot of people, though. Yes, it can be. Yeah. It, can be. it all changes so, so quickly. Yeah. So we appreciate you coming on to enlighten many of us. And, uh, no problem. We will have you back again to talk again about the, the Instagram and Pinterest. We, we'll put those two together because they kind of fit nicely together. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks very much. In the meantime, your mar- your website address is themarketingcrowd.ie. So anybody that wants to find out more, there's lots of information and free guides there and they should log on and have a look. Okay, thanks, sir. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's programme. If you've just joined us, we heard earlier from Sinead Neeland of the Organic College in Drumcolliher, and just before the break, the marketing crowd's Evan Mangan had advice about how best to use Twitter to promote your food business. If you're just joining us, the show will be up on the Best Possible Taste podcast later in the week, along with all the previous 2014 shows. You'll find the podcast there on soundcloud.com forward slash food and drink show. 
Still to come tonight, I'll be sharing an interview that I did with Artie Clifford at the recent Blosnairan Awards in Dingle. And I've details about a couple of events coming up also. Next though, it's recipe time and Karen Coakley from Kenmare Foodies has a mouth-watering chicken dish for you. So pens at the ready, please. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleite. Karen, you're here tonight because we just always have so much to talk about and you're going to have a nice recipe for us every month. And tonight it is a Lebanese chicken dish. It is, Sharon. This is um, one that I've come across lately. I bought a new cookbook. It's a fabulous, fabulous little cookbook. It's called Persiana and it's from Sabrina Gabor. And it says it's like recipes from Persia and beyond. Now, my husband and myself, we both love Middle Eastern cooking and Middle Eastern food. And I think I was kind of launched into it there when I bought Ottolenghi, the book by Yota Ottolenghi. And I know we went to see him at Litfest, which it was just a fabulous experience to be in the room with him, watching him, one of your heroes, cooking in front of you. But anyway, this is another lovely book along those lines. It's not as detailed as Jerusalem, which is the Otomotolenghi book. Uh, So the recipes in this, I think I have found, are kind of, they're quick and easy. So they suit a family, especially a working mum. This is just a fantastic recipe because it basically has very few ingredients. You do very little to it. Just sit down, cook it, sit down and eat it. The recipe is called Ras al Chicken trying to not mix that up there basically what it is is you get four to six chicken fillets and you get a tablespoon of olive oil and two to three tablespoons of ras al seasoning now this isn't spicy it's not hot it's quite fragrant and what i was surprised with is that sometimes you can marinate things and the taste doesn't necessarily transfer to the food very well whereas this does it gives the chicken a really really good flavor so you mix the olive oil with the seasoning and you coat it all over the chicken now what I do when I'm marinating is make sure you really rub it into the breast you know spend a good minute or two actually rubbing whenever you're marinating because that will get it'll break down the the tissue and it'll get the 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 flavors well into the chicken Um, so what you do then is you heat your pan or your griddle pan or what I was doing was cooking it on the barbecue during the summer and you cook the chicken until it's cooked and then what you do is you serve it with one pomegranate you take the seeds out of that some sliced red onion and soft flour wraps so you heat your soft flour wraps put them on your plate put your chicken slice your chicken put your chicken on that some rocket leaves some sliced red onion, pomegranate seeds, and then you drizzle pomegranate juice around this. Are you familiar with pomegranate juice? I am, yes. Love it. It's my like one of my other new food finds. It's just the most beautiful flavor. And then what I do is I make a dressing with some Greek yogurt. So you've got 400 grams of Greek yogurt, a good handful of milk, two, or sorry, mint, two tablespoons of sumac. You mix that all, that all that up with salt and pepper. Then you put this over and you wrap it up and you eat it. What's zumak? Sumak is another Middle Eastern spice. Um, it's from a plant. Gosh, what's the plant? It's probably the sumac berry. It's from a berry, but it's dried and ground as far as I know. Now, I'll go home and I'll be Googling it and I'll be going, oh no, I'm all wrong. But um, again, it's a very citrusy. It's very sharp. It's a different flavor again to, let's say, a lot of the spices and herbs that we would be used to. The flavors of the Middle East, I think, are, are different. They're they're earthy, but yet they're quite, they're fragrant. And yeah, so when you kind of have the ras hanout and the sumac and the pomegranate and the pomegranate molasses and the mint together, it's just, it's fabulous and then serve that uh, very very easy again with uh, pomegranate and coriander couscous which is a lovely racial island recipe
some people might be saying where can they get all these different spices and things and you have the answer to that question I have. I was looking for yellow bean paste recently to make a Vietnamese beef curry. And I put the call out on Twitter. I was saying, OK, people, where can I get this? So somebody came back to me and they said, Spice World in Killarney. And I said, where? Passing it all the time. Had never really taken any notice. It's at the top of the Muckras Road um, across from the petrol station there. And anyway, I went in and it is the most amazing shop with every single spice that you could look for. I got my soft flour wraps in there for this. And I think it was one and a half kg was the, the weight of the wraps. Now we had two dinners out of them and they cost me 320. I know supermarket ones, you'd pay that for six of the you know the top brands I got a big huge bag of cinnamon sticks for 260 um, I got 15 kilos of rice for 14 euro and they have all your spices everything that you could want they have in there they have like curry paste green curry paste yellow curry paste madras all of that kind of stuff just well worth checking out for anybody in the area or even just to travel to it see it well, that is a lovely recipe that you have now and your boys all eat that my boys will all eat that um, one of them, Connor won't eat that, but he will put a sausage or something in between his... He just doesn't eat chicken, but he'll do everything else. Rory then, who's the other twin, he's seven. Rory will eat anything that comes his way. He'll eat the plate if you leave it long enough in front of him. And uh, eat all the same. Yeah, we're very lucky. You're, isn't it great now, but it is, you know, obviously testimony to you as a mother and the, the food that you gave them whenever they were... Growing up, growing yeah, up I always... They're still growing up. They're yeah, still young. Um, we just... They, they, they have food all around them. It's what I do. You know, they forage with me, they, they pick berries with me, they cook with me, they go to the market with me. So it's just, it's what we do. And it's, there's no issues. There's no mystery to food. You know, we talk, we talk about food, I involve them in it and it's, it's good. And you mentioned foraging there. There's actually a mushroom foraging event coming up in the Park Hotel in Canmare. There is. That's uh, the details are on their website, um, which I think is parkhotelcanmare.com. I don't know. Parkcanmare.com. Park and it's com. the art of foraging with Bill O'D of mushroom stuff and James Coffee, Coffee the head chef. James is a West Limerick man. And it's on the October the 17th and the 18th. I did that day last year myself and it was an absolutely fantastic day. I loved it and I'm going to go back and do it again. If people are interested in that sort of thing, it's a good Definitely, idea. Definitely, go it's along a great and idea. And then our Bill is just, I mean, that's what Bill does. So he's got, he's a wealth of information and knowledge. And you start off in the cinema in the Park Hotel and you've got a, a let's say, a, a slideshow. And our Bill talks to you about mushrooms and he explains about mushrooms and what he does and about the different species and the different mushrooms. And then you go off in front of the hotel foraging. There's a, a little park, Arena Grass Park, in front of the hotel. So you're sent down there foraging and you have to come back with every single mushroom you find good, bad or indifferent poisonous or not you bring them all back and then when you get back there's a beautiful veranda at the front of the Park Hotel overlooking Kinmare River and they had a table set up there now the same day it was pouring rain we got soaked but it didn't matter and um, so then you go back and there's a table out in the veranda and then Bill has all the mushrooms laid out so they're laid out by edible and non-edible poisonous and non-poisonous and so you bring whatever you have you put it out on the table and you get to match it up with what Bill has I mean I had I'd say before I did the day about three or four mushrooms that I knew for sure that I could pick and after that then I added about another three to it 
it and these would have been because it was October they would have been winter mushrooms because the mushrooms really start in May you know they're like everything else they're like vegetables they have their seasons so you'll have different mushrooms coming out different times of the year so October you'll have hedgehog mushrooms and you'll have winter chanterelles and the winter chanterelles I hadn't really come across before so that was a good one for me to find and you had a picture on your blog there recently or, or Twitter or Facebook of mushrooms that you found. They were all, were they growing on a tree stump? They were growing on a like tree, stunk, they're, tree stump. They're honey fungus and they're growing at the moment. Uh, it's, just, it's, it's mushroom time. It's, it's foraging season. It's Autumn is the best time of the year for going out there. There's so much. But yeah, they were on, they're, I think they're on my Facebook page or they might be on my Twitter page. And they grow on a tree stump. But the thing is, they grow, there's so many of them and they're so ornate, they're so decorative. There's another one there at the moment called a shaggy ink cap and that's a wonderful little mushroom and people say to me, describe it and I said, well, it looks like a squid and a stick. So if you see a little, it's a white mushroom, it grows quite tall and it literally is like squid shaped, if you can picture that and it's on a stick, it's white and the best way to get those is you get them when they're quite young because as they grow, what happens is the mushroom comes away from the stalk and it spreads out and they release an ink so they start to drip a black ink all around them. Now, once they get to that stage, they're disintegrating and they're not really, I mean, they're not poisonous, but they just, they don't taste nice, they don't cook well. But if you can get them young and just salt them in salt and pepper and butter, they're amazing. But like that, if you are going picking mushrooms, don't pick anything that you don't know and always get somebody to identify for you. Absolutely. Well, that was a great chicken recipe. It's going to be up on your blog, which is kenmarefoodies.com, your Facebook page and your tweeting regularly as well. So people should follow you there. And Karen, thanks so much for sharing that. with Thank us you, this Sharon. Evening. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break I was talking to Karen Coakley of Kenmare Foodies who shared a lovely Lebanese chicken dish for us. Check out the kenmarefoodies.com website for details of that if you missed them or missed even some of the, the ingredients and some of the method of how to make it. And let me know how you get on if you do try it out. Karen will be back in two weeks time with her Kerry news and I look forward to talking to her again then. And speaking of Kerry news, I was delighted to take a trip down to Dingle a couple of weeks ago and had the privilege of being one of the judges at the Blossom Erin Awards, which highlight and celebrate the quality of the best Irish food producers and award gold, silver and bronze medals in over 30 categories. When I was there, I spoke to Artie Clifford, who is the founder and chairman of the awards. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Artie, just explain to the listeners what the Blasna Erin is or are. Blasna Erin is a um, awards system that we established um, seven years ago. This is our seventh year, yeah. To um, highlight the quality of food in Ireland and the producers who make it. The reason we started it was that um, I had a discussion with a friend of mine and we were saying that there was no award or accreditation system in the country. We had to go overseas, and we weren't happy with how that was working. So what we did was uh, we set up, we spoke with UCC in Cork, and set up a sensory analysis blind tasting um, system. It's unique, 
Um, it was ourselves, UCC, School of Food and Nutritional Sciences, and a university in Copenhagen. It's now been tested over the seven years. We've probably used the sheets over 100,000 times, and it's always come back with um, what we feel are the correct results. But as the competition has grown from year one, where we had 400 products, to year seven, where we had in excess of 200, 2,000 entries, um, we've seen two things happen. The quality of food has improved, um, but the competition has got extremely tough because it's such a high quality. So what I would say that even to reach this stage, which is the finals, um, and to be in the top five is an accreditation in itself. So how many products were tasted here today? Uh, I, we had 93 categories tasted uh, with an average of five in each. Some we had to go out to six because we couldn't make, we had judging in Cork in August, and then we had ties, and then we had a second round of judging in Cork, and then there was ones we just couldn't, we just couldn't say no, you know, because we go to three decimal points, and that's how tight the scores are. But it's not a competition as such, like it's not first, second, third place, like if something deserves gold, it deserves gold. Is that the way that it works? Am I correct in saying that? We award gold, silver and bronze and uh, in that order and it's the best in a category becomes gold. But that's to say that a silver and a bronze, to be a bronze in, in, the, in the Irish Food Awards is the equivalent to a great taste. So if we took a category like pesto, for example, uh-huh. I was tasting pestos mm-hmm. today. So will there be three pestos announced to say this is gold, silver and bronze? Uh, that's a difficult one to answer because pestos can be in a relishes category or a sauce as savoury. So, and it depends where the producer has placed it. So you may find that a pesto will come in uh, as a dressing or as a sauce. So I would see, to me... I would see pesto as a dressing. And yet, I'd often spread it on a cheese sandwich. So is it a spread? So it depends on where the, the um, producer has entered it, into what category. But obviously, if you've tasted three today, um, the other two products were in the same category because you would have been tasting all five products in that category. Okay, I see. For a producer who gets the call or gets the notification to say that they're a gold winner, what is the reaction normally? Well, what we do is we notify all our finalists and invite them to attend an event here on Saturday morning. Uh, We hold a trade-only networking event for the producers where we take all the final products and showcase them sort of in an artisan food store style. And uh, the reason we hold that is we've got an awful lot of interest from buyers both in Ireland and from overseas. And we've got people in this year from um, uh, Dubai. Um, one member is in charge of Middle East and Africa. So it's recognised now far and wide. Um, and it gives the finalists an opportunity in that closed networking event prior to the awards being announced to speak with people. And the, <coughs> the buyers actually recognise a finalist as a top quality product. So a lot of business done on Saturday morning, a lot of, you know, buyers jostling to get talking to this producer before the other does. And sometimes for a small producer, the decision to, you know, scale up, it's a decision they want to think long and hard about. Um, Sometimes staying small is, you know, lifestyle rather than, I won't say money, but buyers can be fickle. 
So uh, we always tell the producer if they've been approached to supply from 500 jars to go to 15,000 jars, slow down. Don't just multiply the number of jars by euros and think, my God, this time next month I'm going to be earning. It doesn't happen that way. So, yes, it's uh, an event that we encourage all of the producers to attend. And following that, we have three sessions of award presentation. And um, all finalists are called in. Uh, We hold it in the cinema here in Dingle, so it's kind of like the Oscars of the food industry. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of excitement. It's got to the stage now where the cinema capacity is not large enough to hold the crowd that wish to attend, so we have to do a live feed into the marquee next door. Um, And we in the cinema, when somebody is announced, we can hear in the background the cheers, the screeches from family members. We've got a lot of situations lately where producers, congratulations, producers, you know, um, even on the social media thing where bread is a... You know, real bread is a growing category in Ireland, and I see bread bakers talking to one another on Twitter, congratulating one another, saying, of course your bread was going to win, and yet they could be competitors in the marketplace. So there's a great sense of camaraderie there? Absolutely. Um, We know um, our first producers, actually, um, on Wednesday night I picked up a tweet to say, only one more sleep to Dingle. And that was uh, Wednesday night, so, no, sorry, Tuesday night. And they arrived on Wednesday, and they intend staying here until next Tuesday um, because they'll enjoy themselves at the festival. They'll partake in the festival, um, which takes place over the same weekend as the Bloss Awards. And they have contacted one another, and they're all sharing houses in the one area. So, yes, sense of camaraderie, uh, encouragement for one another, Uh, talking to one another about sourcing packaging, transport, networking, making life simpler for a smaller producer. What advice would you give to somebody whose product doesn't make the the mark? That doesn't reach the finals? Yeah. Um, What I would always say is, and we've been asked before about feedback and why we do or do not give it. Uh, We generally don't. We do like this year. We'll try and engage with some people. Um, What I would say is, look at your product look at how it's made how it's presented now packaging doesn't make any difference here texture may appearance may definitely taste but i would say go to your local enterprise office go to your local university and sit down with the academics you know i was a food producer i believed that i made the best pattern or the best seafood chowder in the country um that was because i made it um, unfortunately, it never got into the Blast Awards because I couldn't enter my own product into these awards. Um, but when I looked at it, there was things that could be made. But it's like, you know, you'll never criticise your own child. Well, you said there at the start of the interview there's over 2,000 products mm-hmm. um, here today. Or people at, the, at the original, at the original initial judging talk at the university, there was over 2,000 products. And you see that growing and growing every year? Um, It's not growing at the rate that it has been growing since the first year. But then I think we didn't reach out to as many producers. I don't think we're saturated yet. Um, I do see a small growth maybe next year. Um, Not too much. What I've found that this year is we've had more companies entering than we did in previous years. But entering... um, where other companies were entering the fuller range that they had. And now, producers are getting cleverer. 
and they're picking up on they're not putting all the horses in the same race so they're picking their best horse and putting that forward so what if you take the amount of producers that entered this year in relation to previous years yes we have more producers entering but definitely what they're doing is they're selecting the products that they enter they're selecting the categories that they enter they know how tough the competition is so they're sending their best horse to the race What's your vision for the awards? Where do you see it going in the next two to three years? Um, where do I see the awards Because in three years' time, you'll be 10 years <coughs> old. Yeah. Um, the interna- international recognition that we have at the moment, I would like to be in a situation that we're strong enough to be able to do a showcase maybe twice, three times a year, but not just at home to go to the Middle East, to bring these producers over there, to say, look, lads, these are our winning products, to go to London. Um, I know that Anne Dunn was here today from Harrods, and, uh, you know, we only have to give Anne a call and say, would you like to come to Dingle for the weekend to judge? And she's on the next plane. So um, high recognition by overseas buyers, by overseas supermarkets, but I would like to see the Irish food producers, be they big or small, expand the share of the market. And I hope that Blas, in what we do, can help them do that. Thanks so much for having me as a judge. I hope I have done the products justice. And I hope you'll have me back next year. Uh, Looking forward to it. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Thanks to Artie for taking the time on a very busy day to talk to me and congratulations to the award winners, especially those who have appeared here on the show, including Kirsty O'Kelly's Silver Darlings in Pimento and the Green Apron was also recognised. And I think the Corn Store won something for, I think they won a couple of awards actually. One of them was for a whiskey and fig jam, which I must get my hands on because it sounds very nice. I was thrilled to talk to lots of very interesting people when I was in Dingle and I'll share those interviews with you over the coming weeks. One is actually with the lovely Nevin Maguire, who along with his brother Kenny minded me the whole night I was there. So huge thanks to the two Maguires and the Dingle Food Festival people for inviting me along. I really, I really had such a brilliant time. Now it's time to look at some events coming up this weekend and a good place to check out what's happening is the discoverireland.ie forward slash food website. As you know, Helen McDade from Fulcher Ireland keeps us up to date with what's coming up at the start of the month. Check out justcooking.ie for details of Mark Doe's demos and courses that are on at the moment and Mark himself will be in Newcastle West on October the 23rd because Killochtine National School Parents Council is organising a fundraising night in the Ballon Temple Inn. They're hosting a cookery demonstration with well-known chef Mark Doe and the doors open at 7.30pm and the demo begins at 8 o'clock sharp. Tickets cost €10 Euros and can be bought from the school. Fiona Uema is back in the Mila Gallery in City West this Thursday with her Japanese cookery demonstration, well worth the €25. Euros. So check out milagallery.ie for details of that and they're also having an Asian cookery class with Lady Eve that's on there tonight week which is Tuesday the 21st of October and that sounds like an interesting one please keep sending me details of your cookery demos, food courses product launches and fundraisers to s.noonan at live.ie and I'll be only too delighted to give them a shout out here on the diary on best possible taste Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. 
that is all we have time for this evening on the best possible taste. Thanks very much for tuning in, be it through the traditional wireless or if you're further afield through tunein.com or the TuneIn app. Remember the podcast soundcloud.com forward slash food and drink show if you missed any of tonight's show or maybe even an older one. Thank you so much to all of my guests tonight and uh, next week Ron Forrest still returns with wine recommendations. Until then, wrap up warm, have a great week and bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!